race is a very real thing and racism is a very real problem, but we should try and view each other as human beings first and foremost and that there's much more that unites us than that separates us. And if you ask most Democrats around the country whether they agree with that statement, they do. It's like a small subset that think that everything should be framed in terms of racial identity or some other form of identity. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. It has been about a week since the off-cycle elections in the United States, but I am still thinking about them intensely. This was a very urgent warning to Democrats. The fact that they lost an election in the now pretty solidly blue state of Virginia to a Republican candidate by a reasonably clear margin shows just how much Democrats will have to change to make sure that they stop Donald Trump or one of his acolytes from coming back to the White House in 2024. This is the simple state, I think, of where America is at today. Donald Trump is way out of the cultural mainstream. Most Americans do not like him. They do not like what he stands for. They do not like the crazy drama he causes. They are sick of it. But most Americans also think that Democrats are way out there on culture, that they are overly pessimistic about their own country, that they don't have a positive vision of it, that they are censorious, that they look down on ordinary people. And so if Democrats in the current state run against Trump, it's likely a toss-up. If you run against a somewhat more moderate Republican, somebody who is a little bit more careful in his words, who doesn't love to antagonize, like Glenn Youngkin, they are very, very likely to lose. The way that this debate has played out in Virginia was over education and the use of so-called critical race theory in schools. Now, I think the reality of what was going on there is a bit more complicated than a lot of the media portrayed it as being. Clearly, students in public schools in Virginia are not, by and large, reading the academic articles of people like Kimberly Crenshaw. And so it is true that, in a sense, critical race theory was not being taught in Virginia. But it is also clear to anybody who's been following the broader cultural debates, who has been looking at what's being taught in education schools across the country, who's been looking at who has been being invited to speak to the most prominent conferences of teachers in the country, uh, that there is a very obvious attempt to introduce a kind of popularized form of critical race theory into schools. That is what the New York Times' 1619 curriculum is all about. That is what uh, exercises like so-called privilege walks, where students are being asked to take steps forward or backward based on the color of their skin, are all about. That is what the whole rhetoric of the educational field in the last few years has been about. It is obviously a kind of popularized cousin of some of those academic theories. Now, you can defend the need for all of that, if that's what you believe to be right, or you can move away from it if you realize that it is divisive in a way that's actually likely to impede progress. But what you cannot do is what Democrats have decided to in that election, which is simply to tell people, na 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 you don't know the formal definition of critical race theory, this is all invented, your concerns are imaginary. That is simply not the way you can successfully talk 
to voters. But there's a broader problem. This is just an instance of it. In a focus group of Biden voters who had voted for Youngkin just after the election, it turned out that most people trusted Democrats much more on public policy, but they trusted Republicans much more on culture. And whereas in 1992, it was true to say it's the economy stupid, it is now, as I've been arguing for a long time, true to say that it's the culture stupid. That is the beating heart of elections in the United States, and it will remain so for the next years. So Democrats need to focus on convincing voters of the good they can do for the country, on touting the good economic and other policies. All of that is fine. But for voters to listen to them, they first need to assure Americans that they have gotten the cultural message, that they'll stop being way out there on culture, that they can create a narrative about this country, which is perfectly upfront about its many flaws, about its many historical sins, but that is also celebrating of a country and optimistic about the future we build together. This narrative, it now seems to me, is absolutely key to Democrats being able to have a chance at holding Congress in 2022 and a chance at holding the White House in 2024. My guest today is Andrew Yang. Andrew, as most of you will know, was a candidate in the primaries for the 2020 Democratic race for the presidency of the United States, as well as in 2021 for mayor of New York City. He is an entrepreneur, an attorney, and he has recently written a book called Forward Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. We talked about everything from how you start running a presidential campaign as somebody without much national name recognition to the kind of structural changes that America needs to make to its democracy to whether there's a realistic prospect for a third party in American politics achieving something. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Andrew Yakna, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I've admired your work for quite some time. I really like the writings that you put out in The Atlantic. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. I really admire your presence on the political scene in its evolving way. You know, we're recording this a couple of days after the election in Virginia and other places around the United States. What's your overall assessment of what those elections tell us about the state of the United States and what's going on politically right now? Joe Biden won Virginia by 10 points a year ago. And then really his proxy, I mean, you have to know that Terry McAuliffe equals the Democratic Party. <laughs> He's like a real uh, fixture, an establishment figure. Uh, but he just lost to a Republican that no one had heard of X months ago. So you can think of this as establishment Democrat versus generic Republican, kind of Mitt Romney type in uh, plus eight Democratic environment or plus 10 or whatever the number is. And the generic Republican won. You saw in New Jersey, it was too close to call for a day. And this is a state that Biden won by 16 points. New Jersey is quite blue. So what you're seeing is a very, very negative political environment for national Democrats. And that if this continues for another 12 months, 
you would see a red wave where the Republicans would retake the House, certainly, and then possibly the Senate. And so people should know that that is the course that we're on right now. Why do you think that Democrats are in such bad state at the moment? Is that to do with the stage of the pandemic? Is that to do with the failure of Biden's attempt to pass an ambitious spending bill through Congress? Or do you think it has to do with some of the cultural issues that Glenn Youngkin really emphasized in Virginia? If you think about the Democratic message over the last number of months, the two most powerful components have been not Trump, defeat Trump, Trump bad, and managing COVID. And both of those narratives have run out of gas. The American public does not want to hear about COVID after a year and a half. And running against Trump when it's a Mitt Romney type just did not seem genuine to a lot of people. A friend of mine said something to me that really stuck with me. He said that Democrats' primary emotional plea seems to have been fear. And you can't be afraid all the time forever. Like, it just stops working. So absent those two pillars, then you move on to democratic policy, democratic deliverables, democratic governance. And that hasn't come through. Terry McAuliffe in Virginia was essentially begging Congress to pass the infrastructure bill because he thought that would have helped. And Virginia is very proximate to D.C. There are a lot of people who do business in D.C. I'm sure Terry knew what he was talking about, where if Washington had passed some of these bills, then Democrats would have a least a positive case to make, but they didn't really have that. And so th this is a very, very tough climate, in part by Democrats' own lack of a positive message. Well, what about the role of education in that campaign? Glenn Youngkin lambasted the public school system in Virginia for not reopening in person for much of the pandemic. And he also warned about some of the changes in curricular content that he claimed were taking place. And much of the democratic response seemed essentially to be, this is all fake and imaginary. The concerns that parents have about the nature of the instruction are just sort of trumped up Fox News culture war and they have no basis in reality. What do you think is the truth of those claims and what do you think was actually going on there? How could the Democratic Party have responded more effectively to those campaign issues? I'm a parent. I talk to other parents and parents have been very, very angry that schools have been closed for so long because it doesn't seem to have been leading with our kids' well-being. It seemed to be leading with the will of the teachers' unions. And everyone knows the Democratic Party and the teachers' unions are very, very close. And, and so uh, this is a critique that really does hit home. A lot of parents are like, yes, schools should have been open. It did not serve our families well that schools were closed forever. It seemed like an excess of caution in service of the teachers' unions. The critical race theory argument also does hit home for a lot of families. I had a friend come to us just casually over dinner and, and say that her daughter, who is white, asked why she couldn't be friends with her black classmates because of what was being taught in the classroom. And that appalled her. And so if these are the kinds of conversations that parents are having, it does lead to some resentment and anger as to what's being taught in various schools. So in some contexts, the entire thing is made up in the sense that there are some schools teaching something in critical race theory is being defined in different ways. And it's kind of a conservative boogeyman, et cetera, et cetera. But I have had conversations with parents that lead me to believe that this is a real thing in a number of school districts. 
Yeah, I mean, what strikes me about the democratic response to those charges is that it's a kind of middle school debate team trick, right? Which is to say that, you know, Republicans express those concerns about curricular content, which they call critical race theory. And it's not clear to me that's exactly the right term. It's certainly the case that people aren't pouring over academic articles in middle schools or high schools across the country. But as a result, Democrats are just saying, well, look, what you're talking about with critical race theory, that's just something they're teaching in law schools. They're not doing that here at all. But as I've written recently in The Atlantic, uh, you know, to say to voters, your concerns are imaginary is an ineffective response, even if it's true. Uh, and in this particular case, I don't think it is precisely true, because clearly there has been a shift in how the New York Times writes about these issues. There has been a shift in how many teachers teach about those issues, which is inspired in a complicated way by real shifts in the economic left. And that, as you're saying, go, for example, from emphasizing a universalism that's trying to say, hey, there's deep prejudices in this country, but we should try to see each other as human beings. We should try to move beyond those to teachers often emphasizing the importance of identity in ways that might make some children think, oh, am I not supposed to be friends with people from other groups or whatever? That may be particular instances of things going wrong, but Democrats need to take those things seriously and speak about them intelligently rather than saying, well, if you're raising any concerns about this, that's just the Fox News boogeyman and you're just an idiot who's listening to Tucker Carlson. This issue is going to be a consistent loser for Democrats. They need to get their arms at least around a coherent response and... Obviously, the playbook is being established in Virginia, and so the Republicans are going to hammer this. I think I could formulate a more effective response that does emphasize universalism, because that's what most Americans want, just to say exactly what you just said, which is, look, race is a very deep issue in U.S. society, and racism is real, but we should see each other as human beings first, and that is where our kids should be taught and headed. I mean, that, that would do the trick for a lot of families. And hand-waving it away, as you say, is not convincing. Yeah, and waving it away always seems sort of an odd political response, right? I mean, it would be much easier to say, look, some teachers teach crazy stuff. It's not the typical thing. And you know what? That crazy stuff is bad. But that's not what we should be doing. And that's not what most people are doing. You know, that would be a fine response that at least takes concern seriously rather than saying, what are you talking about? If you're talking about this, it's just a white supremacist who, you know, has been brainwashed by Fox News. And, and, and I worry that this is indicative of a broader culture at the moment within political and cultural elites, but also trying to be a Democratic Party more broadly, which is basically saying... If you're not on board of our program, then there's something wrong with you, then you're an evil person. And, and I guess I wonder whether you share that fear, and if so, how Democrats might move beyond it, or if there's any realistic prospect for Democrats to move beyond it. Democrats should try to move beyond it. I think Joe Biden established something of a template for this, where during the nomination process, anytime he was tempted to be dragged into this, he tried to avoid it. And I thought it was a credit to him, truly. The problem is that there are certain elements of the left that are the most vocal that will take umbrage at someone who doesn't embrace or defend some of these ideas. And as a result, a lot of the people on the left were very dubious about Joe. Well, Joe is Joe. It's another thing. It's like, you know, Joe is an actual person. And so it it would have been kind of (laughs) like, I think, tough for him to simulate (laughs) belief in some of these things. But I do think that there's a very significant part of the Democratic Party that is very fearful of being called to task by their base on this sort of issue. This is a point that I made during the primaries that, you know, Joe Biden 
is not woke and Joe Biden is not anti-woke. He's too old to be either. But, you know, that's not a choice that most Democrats are going to have because they are younger than Biden. And they're not running directly against Trump is the other thing. The argument I'd make to echo you, Yasha, is that a lot of this is amplified on social media, but the actual number of people who are up in arms about some of these ideas is quite low in most places. And so this is a distortion that's being wrought by social media in large part, in my opinion. What do you mean by these ideas in this context? The argument that you and I just put forth, in my opinion, is shared by most Americans of any political alignment, which is that race is a very real thing and racism is a very real problem, but we should try and view each other as human beings first and foremost, and that there's much more that unites us than that separates us. And if you ask most Democrats around the country whether they agree with that statement, they do. It's like a small subset that think that everything should be framed in terms of racial identity or some other form of identity. Let me ask you a sort of personal question away, because one of the things that I find striking is to what extent politicians seem to run in lockstep. And the same, of course, is true of university presidents by and large, with some notable exceptions, with leaders of institutions. For the last few years, so many leading Democrats have, to some extent, engaged in this kind of rhetoric. And you in the 2020 presidential race and in the race for the nomination to be mayor of New York, I think in many ways didn't. But what is going on there? Why is it that there's, you know, 15 candidates running for the Democratic nomination, you know, to be president of the United States? And they all have, you would think, an incentive to differentiate themselves from each other. And yet, on many issues, they end up sounding so similar to each other. What are the pressures of the sociological processes as somebody who's been sort of part of that world that explain that? You have a particular set of narratives that are embraced by political staffers and journalists and folks on Twitter. And if you don't voice those narratives, then they will snipe at you and attack you. And nobody likes to be attacked. And so it's much easier to make these gestures towards terminology and identity all the time. I'll say one thing about running for president that was interesting is that I had a social media team and they would ping me with tweets about different groups, different holidays, different celebrations, just about every day. And one of the things that you would do as a candidate is you would celebrate Black Heritage Month, Indigenous Peoples Day, Juneteenth, LGBTQ celebrations. And I was struck by how frequent these were. And I shrugged and approved the vast majority of them. Uh, but every once in a while, I would be like, you know what, that one just seems like a little bit not genuine in the sense that it wouldn't be something that I would actually do in real life. And so that's the kind of thing that I think happens to every candidate that has a staff around them. And so you naturally wind up sounding alike. Yeah, and I, mean, I think there's the theory of this case, which I think also dominated the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign and many campaigns, which is, look, we're going to cobble together a majority from all of these different groups. And so every speech that I hold has to sort of name check them and has to have something that appeals to those groups. Sometimes that's identity groups. Sometimes that's just parents of young children or retirees or different kind of interest groups, right? And the idea is that, you know, if I have an offering for each of those groups and then all of that adds up, that's a majority. But what I fear is that in your speech, 
you know, in order for me to register the thing that's relevant to me, I have to hear 12 other things that are not relevant to me. And I've switched off by the time it is saying something that's actually relevant to my life. And that seems to stand in contrast with both the sort of overarching campaign that something like Barack Obama ran in 2008, but also with a much nastier overarching campaign that somebody like Trump ran, right? With a very clear story of where America's at and what's going wrong. His policy solutions didn't exist and a lot of it was incoherent, but there was a kind of clear, compelling image of this is the grand narrative. And, you know, when you talk to a lot of data analysts and so on, way forward in 2016, Trump had, you know, a more sophisticated operation of micro-targeting people, that just seems to me to be wrong. The idea that different people in America in 2016 saw something very, very different in Trump, I think they all saw the same thing. And so, yeah, I wonder how you feel about sort of what the role is of grand narrative versus the role of these sort of micro-targeted appeals. This, again, goes back to just how powerful and influential the political consultant class is. So I ran for president as a total no-name civilian. And of course, there was not a consultant that would come within a million miles of me and my campaign until we raised lots of money. And then all of a sudden, the consultants came out of the woodwork and were like, okay, let's help and advise you. We ignored and fired a number of them. But then there were a couple that were like, oh, you're pretty good. Let's work with you. So what they do is they do slice and dice the electorate into various categories and then say, okay, here's where you're weak. You have to do something to shore up your popularity with, you know, pick a group, women, parents of young children, military vets, like whatever the group is. And then you then incorporate something like that into your remarks. And then that happens over and over again. And then before you know it, you've got like a nice hodgepodge of (laughs) various appeals that you're making to different groups. And by the way, those things do work when you speak to Democratic audiences in terms of applause lines, because Democratic audiences have been conditioned to clap when you call out a particular group, even if they're not in that group. They're just like, you know, when you talk about teachers, one of the surest applause lines, you know, you can get. So when I was doing my thing in Iowa, New Hampshire, I was not getting any applause. And honestly, it was a little bit like, huh, you know, what am I doing wrong? And I write in my book that I ended up discovering a new political language that just happens to be the way I think and talk (laughs) that the consultants did not like. They were like, hey, this political language doesn't work. But there were, uh, let's call it 10% of people that responded very strongly to my political language. And that was enough to build a vibrant campaign because people were so enthusiastic. On the Trump side, you know, he does have a master narrative. I agree with you, Obama had a master narrative. I like to think I had a master narrative because there are a lot of Americans that are just sick of this compartmentalized approach to politics that's driven by consultants, and they kind of recognize it. They see through it. They think it's bullshit. (laughs) One of the things that I'm striking what he just said is just, you know, the idea that, like, look, you're running, and for whatever reason, you're just not appealing to military veterans. And the idea that, you know, if there's something about a candidate that just doesn't particularly speak to military veterans— if they suddenly have, you know, a pandering applause line about how wonderful military veterans are and that they're going to, you know, raise pensions for military veterans or something like that, that that somehow would, you know, make you culturally appealing to those groups just seems to me such a weird conception of politics, right? Because most people just have a view of the world and they're looking for a candidate that seems to them to to speak for that view of the world. They're not saying, is he name-checking me? They're not saying, is there something very, very specific that I'm going to get out of this? 
Well, here's the process in real life, Yasha. You might enjoy this. So you're the candidate. Let's say you're working on a group of military veterans. What your team will do is your team will set up an event with you and a military veteran group, and then you will spend some time with them. You will listen to them. They will take photographs, and then your campaign will put out those photographs in the hopes that then the folks in that group are like, okay, he's speaking to people like me. Black voters, maybe you know, the most common in this category where, you know, there are black leaders that you then meet with and then the hope is that you reach various voters. So this is politics, really. This is professional politics, the way it's played today. And if you say, look, I, you know, I don't think that's effective, you're disputing the existence of like a whole lot of people <laughs> in this industry who literally get hired to interface with a particular community. There are paid consultants whose entire job it is, okay, I'm going to help get the candidate in front of this particular type of person or this type of leader. How representative do these groups tend to be of the people they actually speak for? I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot is that, you know, among the people I know, Latinos or African-Americans are very, very left-wing. But that's because among the people I know tend to be very, very left-wing because the people I know tend to be, you know, people who went to fancy colleges, who work in academia or journalism or some related field. And the average political view there is just very far to the left. And I wonder whether people who don't actually have a lot of exposure to members of various other groups sort of say, well, look, the people I know, and of course, the organizations that represent them often, have this set of views. So this must, in fact, be the view of that whole demographic category, and that that often is systematically wrong, that, you know, the views articulated by representatives of Hispanics or Latinos in Washington, D.C., just are really far away from, from the big breadth of opinion within actual Latino voters. So I guess, what do you think these mechanisms are? How effective are they at actually reaching the constituencies that they claim to represent? Is that the question? Yeah, do they actually reach those constituencies and sort of how can politicians, and not just politicians, but journalists or citizens reading about, you know, the representative organization said this, how can they sort of de-bias the perception of those groups? There's a layer of people that are highly engaged on social media who will see the interaction and interpret it in the way that the consultants intend. The average person in that group may or may not ever see it. There are certain organizations and people that actually do speak for a very large audience. I think the most compelling example of that in this past cycle was Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, where a lot of endorsements don't mean a whole lot. But some endorsements mean a great deal. And as a candidate, I have to confess, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. You're like, is this one going to matter? Is this one going to matter? But it's crystal clear that Jim Clyburn's endorsement ended up swinging the dynamics of the entire race. That's a rarity. For the most part, if you have some person who's part of a community who endorses, it's not going to move the entire community. But there are a few people that will take their cues from that person. And that can add up. There's certainly a massive competition for endorsements in various ways. And what's interesting is, if I recall the Democratic nomination cycle, I don't think that Joe led in a lot of these endorsements, or at least it wasn't like a crushing lead, but he got the one that matters in the form of Jim Clyburn. <laughs> What's the difference between Jim Clyburn and the many, many 
endorsements that don't matter? Why is it that Clyburn was able to actually move a lot of voters in a way that, you know, many, many endorsements don't? You know, I've thought about this a fair amount, and I spent a lot of time in South Carolina. So there are a lot of voters in South Carolina that aren't that engaged, honestly. They're not sure what they want to do, but they do trust the Clyburns. And so if Jim Clyburn says, hey, Joe Biden's our guy, then a lot of people down there would just say, like, okay, like, I trust Jim. Jim says, Joe, let's go with Joe. And I heard that over and over again in South Carolina, where folks weren't sure what to do. And when James Clyburn made his endorsement known, then everyone moved that direction, essentially in lockstep, simultaneously. That is very, very unusual. But in South Carolina, the aren't is politically plugged in for the most part. And so a cue like that can be extraordinarily powerful. I can't think of an endorsement that would parallel it in Iowa or New Hampshire, in part because the people there are very, very engaged and have been meeting candidates and been making up their own minds for months in most cases, which I don't think was the case in South Carolina. But it's one of the differences also about sort of the extent to which Clyburn has organic links within the community for which he was. He, he has been there for decades. His family is an institution there. And that's also something of a rarity. Yeah, it seems to me that often when I think of the kind of endorsements, especially when it's not by particular politicians and office holders, but by organizations and associations, it's these activist groups that are funded by, you know, large foundations and billionaires, staffed by people who all have gone or mostly have gone to you know, fancy colleges and so on, and who obviously have some kind of link to the communities they represent, but are sort of you know, a very particular slice of it, but are an elite, highly educated, much more political replies of, of that. Now, obviously, all of that is in certain ways true of Clyburn relative to, say, the average black voter in South Carolina as well. But he just seems to have more organic understanding and links and relationships within the community than, you know, the National Association of whatever it is. 100%. It's much more genuine and far-reaching and organic. You know, when you were saying this just now, Yasha, I thought of the Asian American community. I'm not sure that there is like you know, a uh, level of engagement or unity where like the entire community would move on the basis of uh, any individual organization, certainly, because there's so many organizations. So if an organization said, hey, we can do this, like there would be a very narrow subset of people like, oh, OK, that matters to me. <laughs> and the voters we should be most concerned about to the point of this podcast are the less engaged voters. And the, the problem right now is that there is like this massive bias towards the highly engaged online audience. And then it's missing all of these folks who are, let's say, poorer, more rural, Latino, in immigrant communities. They're not sitting there, you know, glued to Politico or whatnot. <laughs> They're just living their lives, doing their thing. And then if someone makes a very basic appeal, then they hear it, but they don't they're not listening to this podcast, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I think I mean, this, this is something that I always tell my students and certain other audiences where I'm, look, everybody in this room is by definition super, super weird because you all have chosen to engage with politics in a pretty intense way. And so even if you're representative of a general population in all kinds of other ways, you are at the top 1% of people most interested in politics. And if you don't realize that that just systematically makes your positions about politics, the way you process arguments, the way you process rhetoric, different from most voters, you fail to understand the fundamental thing. Uh, 
And one of the things I'm proudest of is that I reached people that were very unlike me and they felt like I was on their side. When I was back in Iowa just two weeks ago, a server came up to me who had taken a shift off and spent her own money to come to my book talk and said, thank you for being one of the only candidates that genuinely seemed like they were fighting for the little person like me. Um, thank you for coming back. And she said that the only people I felt that way about were you and Bernie. And that made me really proud because she saw in me someone who genuinely just wanted to make things better for her. And obviously you could look at me and say like, Andrew, what do you have quote unquote in common with like a waitress in Iowa? And I like to think a great deal because, you know, we're both human beings. We both were parents in this case, and we both just want a better life for our kids. So that's a case that I would love to see made in different ways, but that's the opposite of the way politics operates right now in large part because of the political industrial complex that's arisen. So I have a question about your campaign and the political industrial complex. I'm going to make a slightly weird analogy. I don't, I'm not accusing you of being a cult leader, but it always struck me that if I woke up tomorrow and suddenly I was the leader of some kind of cult, I guess I sort of understand how that operates, how you run a cult. I have no idea how you become a cult leader. You know, like how do you get the first five people to think of you as somebody they should follow in that. You have a podcast, Yasha. I'm sure you are a cult leader and you're, you know, the people listening to this right now are like, tell us what to do, Yasha. Lead us. I'm not cut out to be a cult leader, but I have a similar question about your campaign, which is to say, I completely understand how once people were paying attention, you know, you became a kind of phenomenon and people were drawn to your message in your campaign. But as somebody who didn't have deep roots in politics, who didn't have a lot of name recognition, how did you start your campaign? How do you get something like that off the ground? The single biggest booster, and I talk about this in my book, which I imagine you read because, you know, you're a good interview and all that jazz. But the main way I got traction was podcasts, where there would be a podcast host who would have me on for an hour-long conversation. And then some people heard me and were like, oh, I like this guy. I like this guy enough to give him five, 10 bucks. And then that grew and grew over time. It did require me being the sort of person who could go to my network and raise a few hundred thousand dollars and go without salary and stuff. You know, it's not like the ordinary American can just run for president successfully. Unfortunately, I mean, I wish they could. But I'm an entrepreneur. I've been around the block a little bit. And so I did the math and was like, can I go three years without salary and just go grind it out and try and make this case? And if it's a dud, then go home and say, well, I tried. You know, I did my best to help explain what the heck is going on in our country and the economy and advance real solutions like universal basic income that I'm convinced are inevitable. I would have gone home happy. I'm sure my wife would have been like, well, that was, you know, a pathetic way to spend a few years. <laughs> but, but I would have been like, hey, look, I, you know, I tried. And, and I said to someone the other day that, you know, they asked, like, how did you persevere? It's like, well, if you're an entrepreneur, you kind of already write off the time period. Like, I was like, I'm in this for three years, no matter what. But also, I went to my friends and family and said, hey, can you pitch in $2,700 for my campaign? And so, you know, that's maybe not an enormous amount of money, but it's still you know, my commitment. It's like my commitment is I'm going to bust ass and do everything I can. Well, one of the things that I was entertained by, I, I don't know if that's entirely accurate because these estimates are often wrong, but you were the entrepreneur in the race and Bernie Sanders was a socialist in the race. But I believe at the beginning of a race, his net worth was in fact higher than yours. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you know, like Bernie's a successful guy and, you know, my wealth tends to have been exaggerated. <laughs> 
tell us a little bit about the book we've just written and the kind of solutions we need in order to push our democracy forward. The universal basic income is one part of that. Tell us about that, but also what else should be on the agenda. Uh, I have become convinced, Yasha, that the duopoly is dooming us. <laughs> and it took me a while to get there. But it really was in researching my book after I came off the presidential trail. I was trying to figure out why I felt like it wasn't working. And then I realized doing this writing that it's actually not designed to work, that it's designed to polarize us and make us more and more insane. It's designed to inflame us, to aggravate us, to depress us, to alarm us. And the media organizations have the same incentives, unfortunately. Social media pours gasoline on this whole set of incentives. So we should expect strife, dysfunction, violence, and ruin, and a growing mistrust in our institutions. That actually should be the default we expect. And realizing this was a very difficult thing, I was like, wow, this is even darker than I thought. <laughs> and then I tried to think, okay, how could you improve on this? And if you look around the world, the U.S. is anomalous in terms of only having two parties. And also, by the way, this polarization, it's really, really unusual. If you look at the UK, it has five parties. Germany has seven parties. Sweden has eight parties. The Netherlands, 17 parties. And these multipolar systems tend to have, one, a much higher resistance to authoritarianism, which I know is the theme of this podcast. But you have to work with another group in order to get anything done, which, by the way, was the original vision of the Founding Fathers, who were very anti-partisan. John Adams said two parties would be a great evil upon the Republic in 1780. So recognizing then that, okay, we're actually being set up, it's going to fail, and how could you amend it or fix it, which seems nearly impossible because the duopoly defends itself. But I was inspired by success in Alaska just over this past year, where they shifted from closed party primaries to open primaries and ranked choice voting in 2020, which, by the way, had immediate repercussions because the Alaskan Senator Lisa Murkowski is the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Donald Trump, who was also up for re-election in 2022. And her approval rating among Alaskan Republicans now stands at 6%, so it is indeed politically suicidal to go against Trump. But now she's not subject to a party primary where only the Republicans will vote on whether to bring her back. She can bring her case to the entire Alaskan public, and it gets decided via ranked choice voting if she's in the top five, which she will be. So that incentive switch actually freed up Senator Murkowski to vote her principal. And so we can do the same thing in other states around the country as quickly as possible. We have about 12 months to do it. I then realized that this is the genuine path that could save us from the dysfunction by making it so that our leaders aren't trying to cater to the 10 to 20 percent most extreme voters, which is a very big theme of our conversation right now, but instead to 50.1 percent of the general public. So let's split the conversation about this into two halves, because I think I'm very sympathetic to you on one of them and more skeptical on the other. So one way I'm very sympathetic is the kinds of institutional changes we might be able to institute to make people more free to vote the conscience, to reduce the way that, for example, the Republican Party is shamefully beholden to Donald Trump at the moment. 
so tell us about what those measures would be. Open primaries are one of them. Why does that make such a difference? What else is there in terms of sort of institutional changes that we should push for within our democracies? Right now, 83% of congressional districts in the United States are either very blue or very red, which is why you have a re-election rate for individual members of 92% plus, even while Congress has a national approval rating of only 28%. So think about that. Three out of four Americans are upset about Congress, but you have a virtually guaranteed path to getting reelected if you decide to stick around, which, by the way, most members do want to stick around because they seem to love the job. So why is this mismatch so great? And it turns out the reason is that in 83% of these districts, the game is not win the general election. You're guaranteed to win the general election if you're the candidate for your party. The game is to avoid getting primaried successfully within your party. So then your incentives become, okay, if I compromise and reach across the aisle, I'm more likely to get primaried. If I go against party leadership, I'm more likely to get primaried. So how about I just do neither of those things? <laughs> and maybe while I'm at it, I just cast some blame on the other side. Those incentives would make someone even fairly middle of the road seem less reasonable pretty quickly. It's a summary as to why we are so stuck. So if you change from closed party primaries to open primaries where anyone can vote, the, all of a sudden your electorate shifts from the hyper-partisans to the general public, and your incentives to become reasonable and compromise and try and deliver something for your constituents shoot up. So even if you were to have the exact same set of human beings in Congress, just this incentive switch, you would see a great deal more independence from Trump because a lot of Republicans would look up and say, you know what, there are 25% of the people in my district who love Trump, and that is, let's call it, 85% of the partisans. But if you open it up to the entire population, like it, it turns out that it's not that 51% want me to go Trump, Trump, Trump all the time, and that there's like you know, a critical mass of people that actually would quite like it if I decided to protect democracy, you know, like say secretaries of state can't be fired or, you know, whatever the heck it is. So that incentive switch is the game to me. And people don't realize just how distorting these closed party primaries are in terms of shutting off any real incentive to compromise. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me about the American primary system, which is quite anomalous in international comparison, actually, is that it's sort of at the wrong level of participation, right? So if you have really broad political participation in a process, it usually tends to be pretty reasonable and pretty sane. The alternative in many other countries is that candidates get determined by a very small number of party officials and electeds who themselves have some kind of democratic legitimacy, right? Either they're elected members of parliament or there's internal party procedures to elect them. But they're a really small set of very experienced people who have a form of responsibility for the institutions, which have political experience, who sort of institutionalists in some kind of way. And what you get in the United States is, you know, 5 to 10% of the population participating in Democratic primaries and 5 to 10% of the population participating in Republican primaries. And those are the most motivated and often the most politically radical members of the public. And so in an odd way, I sometimes think you either need to expand the number of people who are involved in the primary process, and it might be hard to do for most elections, or you somehow need to go to one of the systems you have in other countries. But we're at sort of weird mid-level that's actually counterproductive. 
Yeah, you have 10% of Americans who are ideologically extreme, essentially deciding 83% of congressional representation. And that's a formula for polarization and dysfunction. And we have to change it. I mean, if you don't change it, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to work. So on this, we agreed. Now let me push towards the piece of it where I'm a little bit more skeptical. You compared America having two political parties and these other countries having many more political parties. But virtually all of the countries you mentioned, Germany, the Netherlands and others, have a proportional system of representation. So there is a mechanism for why you have that many political parties. And when I was back in graduate school, you know, learning about the fundamentals of political science, one of the implications of having a first past proposed political system, a majoritarian political system as we do in the United States, is that broadly speaking, you should expect to come up with two political parties. If there's more political cleavages, you end up with a little bit more, there's some more complicated stuff there. But the basic prediction that political scientists would have made in 1960 or 1970 is, look, with America's political system, you're just going to end up with two political parties. So you have just left the Democratic Party, and you think part of the solution is not just institutional reform, but to actually build up a third party. Why do you think that can work despite those institutional constraints and despite the many failed attempts at third parties in the past? So first, let me say I'm for the Fair Representation Act, which would shift to what you're describing in terms of proportional representation. I'm just a very practical guy and just don't think it's going to pass. <laughs> so, Turkeys don't tend to vote for Thanksgiving and political parties don't vote for political systems that rob them of their power. Yes. So I'm for a genuine structural shift that mirrors what's possible in other countries. And I wish that we could do it. And I believe we will do it after we make all these other changes. You know, again, I'm an operator. So like, I don't want to argue for the impossible. I've found some changes that are very doable. So let's do those. I mean, again, one state already did it. It's a deep red state. It costs $7 million to run the successful ballot initiative in Alaska, a very small price to pay to save democracy. Now, Alaska's a relatively inexpensive state, <laughs> but still, you know, like I was in front of some rich people and was like, hey guys, like how much is democracy worth? Like, you know, we should probably invest a bit more. So first I agree. Second, one of the main points I'd make again is that e even if this structural fix doesn't result in, you know, Fordists running the joint, if you improve the incentives of the existing body, that's an enormous win. Is it plausible that if we get 10% of the American public super excited about this movement, that we wind up with a handful of representatives and a senator? Maybe. And how many senators does it take to control an agenda in a polarized country? Maybe one. <laughs> you know, like, uh, is there an independent Senate candidate in Utah who has a legitimate chance to win? Yes, there is. Is Lisa Murkowski in some ways at this point like this kind of independent figure? Yes, she is. So these things are plausible within our current construct. But I agree with you that I would love to see the entire construction change to enable more parties to emerge. I talked to a political scientist named Lee Drutman, who you probably know, and he said that the ideal number of political parties in a place like the U.S., in his opinion, is between four and six. And I think that that's a worthy goal and a worthy vision. I think the forward party is the first step in trying to change the mechanics so that more parties can emerge. Because if you look around, let's say libertarians or whomever, like you can't get past a certain point because the duopoly suppresses you. So if enough of us get together and change the mechanics, then we have a shot. 
open primaries and ranked choice voting would mean that you could see an independent emerge in some of these places, even though the deck, I would admit, would still be stacked towards the two major parties for a number of reasons. I know Lee Drutman well, and he's been on this podcast in the past. Let me chip gears a little bit. There's many strange assumptions that people on the right have in America, and there's many strange assumptions that people on the left have in America, but there's relatively few strange assumptions that people on the left and right share. And one of the oddest and I fear most dangerous ones is the idea of a sort of rising demographic majority for Democrats, which you know drives a lot of the sort of uh, political craziness on the right, a lot of the demographic panic on the right, a lot of uh, voter suppression on the right, but also some of the sort of triumphalism on the left, where the idea is that, you know, we don't need to appeal to swing voters. Sometimes the idea is we don't need white voters. We just have to sort of run up the numbers among ethnic majority, minority communities. And the media is so complicit in that narrative, it drives me crazy. The media is always beating this drum. Yeah. So I guess, first of all, what do you think that's going to look like in 25 or 50 years? Will we have sort of Democratic Party being in power on the basis of the majority minority? Or what, what are the ethnic coalitions likely to look like in 25 or 50 years in this country? This is one reason why we have to make changes as quickly as possible. Because if you play out the current trends, you're going to see divisions unlike anything we've seen before where if a state like Wyoming has two senators, despite having 168th the population of California, and it'll probably you know grow even more extreme over the next number of years, but Wyoming will never give that up. You know why would they? Why would Montana? You know why would North Dakota? So if you play out what's happening now, the urban-rural divide becomes even more extreme. The red-blue divide becomes even more extreme. You do wind up with the Democratic Party essentially alienating white people to an even higher degree than they currently do, white working class voters. You have political violence. You have, in my opinion, like a real chance of like a Civil War 2.0 that's not, you know, the same level of political coherence. But the United States could, in essence, disintegrate. And that is actually our most likely path forward. And you can see that playing out relatively quickly, actually. So that's the path we're on right now. It's one reason why I'm so sure that we need to make a change. Because the triumphalism that you're talking about, what's happening in real life is that the demographics are shifting in states like Arizona and Georgia in ways that do advantage Democrats. But they've already lost ground in Iowa and Ohio. And you can see a similar thing playing out in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin over time. And so you wind up with just worse and worse bifurcation of the country along racial lines, and that would be a catastrophe. Well, one of the interesting things about the 2020 election is that it actually depolarized the electorate by race somewhat. Joe Biden won virtually exclusively because he managed to increase his share of the vote among white voters. And Donald Trump was competitive virtually exclusively because he actually increased his share of the vote among nearly every other demographic group compared to 2016. So I don't know if there was an aberration in 2020 or if that's the beginning of a trend, but it's interesting that politicians talk as though this is an inevitable development, but at least in 2020, we seem to have veered away from that a little bit. I thought it was one of the good pieces of news about that election. I agree with that, and I was profoundly influenced by Jonathan Haidt's work that talks about how these different political strains map to different values that are independent of race. And so you can have more and more Black and Latino voters who 
get disenchanted with the Democratic Party for a variety of reasons. And I think the Democratic racialized rhetoric is losing its currency and power with a number of people who are in various communities. And I think that's going to continue because they look up and say, wait a minute, like what is really happening in my community? What are you doing for me? And then the main Democratic response is, well, look at the other side, like they hate you. And then the answer is like, well, like that's not enough for me to get enthusiastic about voting for you anymore. And so this is going to get stronger and stronger. Right now, the Democratic Party represents the establishment and more and more people are mistrusting the establishment in various ways. The Republican Party has become the de facto anti-establishment party. And that is actually becoming more of a winning argument in different groups of people. And one of the odd things is the self-denial of this, right? I think one of the things that sort of explains a lot of contemporary politics, or just a lot of the culture of sort of American elites, is the idea of a lot of people who've become the establishment of themselves as being the ones who are fighting the establishment. And I think there's sort of a little bit of a lack of self-knowledge in that. And the lack of self-knowledge is in large part because of an absence of genuine competition. Like, really, if you look at both parties, their primary argument is, like, get a load of the other side. I had a tweet the other day, which I said, Democrats should just rebrand as we hate Republicans, and Republicans should just rebrand as we hate Democrats, just to make their messages clearer. <laughs> And that's in large part because they bludgeon you because they're like, well, you don't have a choice, really. Like, what are you going to do? Vote for the other side? <laughs> and so that's the dynamic we want to change with the forward party. I, I was wondering specifically how you think Asian Americans fit into both sort of the American story at this point, but also some of those electoral questions. It strikes me that one assumptions in the rising demographic majority is that, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian-Americans will naturally be on the same side politically. And certainly, as long as you have a candidate like Donald Trump, as long as you have somebody who really is racist, somebody who really does stoke white resentment, that may be a natural outcome. But when you look at those groups, there's also many differences. There's just cultural differences in terms of their cultural and regional roots. There's also obviously differences, for example, in average income. Asian-Americans now out-earn white Americans significantly. Latinos are catching up with a white average, but still below it. African-Americans, for various historical reasons, continue to be less educated on average and less affluent on average. So I guess I was wondering how you think Asian-Americans fit into the American narrative and also the political calculus. Asian-Americans have been leaning Democratic increasingly, and I think in part because of Trump. I think if you had a Republican candidate like Glenn Youngkin, then it's not as pronounced. Asian-Americans are just waking up politically, really. We're the most underrepresented community in terms of electoral politics for a number of reasons. And I like to think that I've helped activate people in the community to think that we can do more. I don't think that Asian-Americans fall naturally into the dominant political narratives of either party. Asian-Americans tend to be more practical, not ideological. There's a bit of like a natural moderation for a lot of Asians. And so one of my goals with the forward party is, again, to create competition, because right now the Democratic Party is like, well, what are you going to do? Like side with them? Like they, they don't like you at all. And I will say that the last couple of years have been very, very bad for Asian Americans' relationship with the Republican Party because COVID was a real cause of resentment and racism towards Asian Americans and Republicans kind of embraced that narrative. So 
hopefully the forward party can become kind of a natural home for people who are more practical, solutions oriented, less ideological, less included in the dominant narratives on either side. And I'm excited about that aspect of what we can do. Uh, hopefully there are people listening to this that resemble this too. We're like, well, I'm not Asian, but you know, that sort of reminds me of me. <laughs> So tell us about the main planks of a forward party in terms of content and the plans. What kind of elections are you thinking of contesting? How do you think that party is able to influence the American political system? Well, I do want to take a moment to talk about ranked choice voting because these are the missions of the forward party. So ranked choice voting is a voting system that naturally leads towards moderation. How much do your listeners know about ranked choice voting, Yasha? Well, I think they probably have a sense. We've certainly mentioned ranked choice voting before, but why don't you give a very brief uh, definition of it? So ranked choice voting is a more modern voting system that enables voters to express their true preferences. It eliminates the spoiler effect. You can rank up to five candidates in order, and the first candidate to get a majority of first place votes wins. So this has the positive effects of making negative campaigning less rewarding, because if I trash you, we both look bad. It rewards coalition builders, people that get along, people that don't turn off large numbers of voters. If Ranked choice voting had been in effect during the Republican primary in 2016. Trump probably does not win because he was getting 30 to 40 percent of the vote in a lot of places, but he wasn't a lot of people's second choices <laughs> like the other candidates were divvying up the remaining vote. So if you are in favor of moderation, ranked choice voting is the system that will help enable it. I think it will help women candidates because women tend to be more naturally reasonable and prone to building coalitions and not turning off large numbers of voters, in my experience. So if you want to try to combat polarization, a combination of open primaries and ranked choice voting is the path. And this is the first pillar of the forward party. Our goal is to make open primaries and ranked choice voting the norm around the country. And ranked choice voting just got adopted in three cities this week. It's an ongoing movement. And what's been fun is that the forward party has been hand in hand with organizations that are pushing both of these measures because they are the antidote. So what's funny is that you talk about a party standing for something like we stand for a process change that will enable new points of view to emerge and improve the incentives for our leaders. And I think that's smart in terms of pushing for an institutional reform that's important in itself, but then also obviously as a result, increasing the kind of electoral opportunities that the party itself would have if those measures are adopted. How do you get people enthusiastic about a process change like that? I imagine that if you ask Americans to define ranked choice voting, I mean, perhaps 10% of Americans would be able to do a relatively good job of that at the moment, I imagine. If you ask people what their biggest concerns are, they're likely to say the economy or education these days, or obviously the pandemic crime, they're much less likely to say, you know, our political institutions are ranked choice voting. So how do you start a mass movement of people enthusiastic about something like that? Podcasts, my friend. Yeah, this is something I've done once before, which is I mainstreamed an idea that most people thought was esoteric or marginal in the form of universal basic income. But I made people see it's like, look, this is actually something you should really care about, think about. The problem, as I define it for people, Yasha, is polarization. Like 42% of Republicans and Democrats now regard the other side as evil or their mortal enemies. We can see that political violence is going to become more and more likely over time. Uh, we can see that we're being led to ruin and conflict and strife. So a lot of Americans care about that. 
and 62% of Americans want an alternative to the duopoly. This duopoly is going to ruin us, and this duopoly is made up. Like, it's not in the Constitution. It came about decades later. There was a point when they were ideologically more or less the same in the 50s and 60s, and then they diverged. And now they've diverged. They're running amok. They're going to destroy us, and we have to come back from it. We have to come back from it by taking a spear called the forward party and then lancing it. Because <laughs> the problem is this. It's like, let's say I'm going to guess the people listening to this podcast are just like really smart, practical types. It's like, hey, I care about politics, but what am I actually going to do? What we need is 10% of Americans to come together and say, look, the system's not going to work. It is set up to fail us. And also, by the way, turn us against each other and spend billions of dollars just making us hate each other. And this is the path out. This is the first major step towards a functioning system. I have a final question for you, which has to do, I suppose, with narrative and how we think about our country in this moment that's so deeply divided in which the political incentives are to hate the other side or to get other people to hate the other side. How can we have an account of the nature of America, which is conscious of its flaws, conscious of its historical injustices and the ongoing discrimination that exists, but also tells a positive vision about what we actually have in common, what actually unites us as citizens, why we should care for each other, even if we have different political views, different religious beliefs, come from different parts of the country, have different ethnicities. I think we have to lead with solutions that people can see would matter to them. And when I started running for president, 27% of Americans supported universal basic income. Today, that's 65%. So if that were the case back then, I might be president. <laughs> And so we can see that attitudes can change towards unifying solutions. Martin Luther King, when he was making a case for guaranteed income, said we need to make common cause with poor whites as soon as possible. He wasn't making a case based on any one community. And so the antidote to this time of polarization is universalism, solutions that people would be able to touch and feel, and making common cause. One of the tenets of the forward party that I love is grace and tolerance, which is people can disagree with me and they're still Americans, human beings, just as valuable as I am. Like, you know, we don't denigrate anyone. And this is a message that a lot of Americans miss. I've gotten outreach from everyone from conservative Republicans to very, very far left liberals and socialists saying, yeah, this is what I've been missing because I don't want to hate someone. And right now, all of our politics are geared towards the opposite. Henry Young, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Oh.